0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 288, Extracurricular Activities. This show is ad-free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, members are listening to the first episode on a new member series about slavery during the Middle Ages. Members are gonna learn about who became slaves how they became slaves, and how slavery shaped and was shaped by the medieval social and economic system. And you can join in and get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. It all costs about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Ali, Martina, and Jason for signing up already. I wonder if King Rudolph of France resented his crown. I mean, seeking the crown probably seemed like a good idea at the time, But the whole thing had been turning out to be an enormous headache. And it all started when Rudolph's father-in-law, Robert, rebelled against King Charles the Simple and drove him into Lorraine. Pretty soon thereafter, Robert got himself crowned as King of the Franks. And that's not too bad. Having a father-in-law who was the King of the Franks? That probably sounded pretty good to Rudolph. The trouble, though, was that Charles was still out there. And he had allies. One was Rollo the Viking Duke of Normandy. But it didn't stop there. Charles also had the Lotharingians. And sure enough, it wasn't long before Charles came screaming back into France, supported by a Lotharingian army. And while Charles was no match for the Frankish military, and he was forced to flee the field with what was left of the Lotharingian men, they still managed to deal a serious blow to the new ruling order of France. Because at the end of the day, King Robert of the Franks lay dead in the field. And that was a huge problem, because the kingdom wasn't exactly stable and couldn't afford a succession crisis. So the nobility turned to Robert's son, Hugh the Great. And Hugh said, you want me to wear the crown, that crown that just got my father killed? Hard pass. And so instead, the nobility decided to give it to Hugh's brother-in-law. And that's how Rudolph became king of the Franks. Well, sort of. The thing was that Hugh didn't want to wear the crown, but he rather enjoyed the power. So even though Rudolph was king, a lot of the power of the kingdom still circulated around Hugh. So this wasn't exactly the most auspicious start for poor King Rudolph. And on top of it all, Charles was still out there, and he was still saying that he was the true claimant to the throne. Which meant that, in addition to the crown, Rudolph had inherited a very dangerous enemy. Now, luckily, Rudolf had several brothers-in-law. He wasn't just stuck with Hugh. And one brother-in-law, Count Herbert II, had an idea for how to save the throne. You see, Charles was only a threat if he was free. So Herbert hatched a plan. He would invite Charles to a meeting, and then he'd capture him. It was a simple plan, and it actually worked, which shocked the hell out of Charles' supporters and his family. And that is how the Crown Prince Louis and Charles's wife, a Gifu, the half-sister of Athelstan, ended up fleeing for England. But even though Charles was imprisoned, there were still threats to Rudolf's rule. And King Rudolf did the best that he could to try and deal with those threats. For example, he arranged marriages, including marrying his brother-in-law, Hugh the Great, to Athelstan's half-sister. And if you're already tired of hearing the phrase in-law, then you've found one of the points of this story. In the royal courts of Europe, pretty much everyone was an in-law to everyone else. And this was by design. Marriages were political alliances. And this complicated web of in-lawship was essentially intended to function as an ad-hoc NATO. But for all the political wrangling, Rudolf's position was never really all that secure. There were wars with Viking armies, wars with the Magyars, wars all over the place. And when he wasn't fighting... He was trying to stomp on the ambitions of his power-hungry nobility, or at least redirect their ambitions away from himself. And in particular, among all of this other stuff, there was one noble who was an enormous threat. Prince Louis, who was living with his impossibly powerful uncle, King Athelstan. The whole thing was a debacle. But it turned out that the real danger to Rudolf's reign wasn't coming from Louis, It was coming from his brother-in-law and not Hugh the Great, actually from his other brother-in-law, Count Herbert II. And I know who could have seen this, right? I mean, who would have thought that the guy who double-crossed King Charles would then turn around in 931 and double-cross King Rudolph? And this wasn't a minor spat. This was a war. Entire fortresses got burned down. And it wasn't until Herbert II was captured, thanks to the combined efforts of King Rudolph and Hugh the Great. That this war came to an end. It was late in 935, right around the same time that King Constantine of Scotland was stewing at the Great Court while Athelstan showed off, when King Rudolf of France finally found himself ruling over a kingdom at peace. And so, of course, he immediately fell ill. Stress will do that to you. And in the first weeks of January 936, King Rudolf died. And once again, the kingdom was at risk of a succession crisis. And so the nobility looked to the next in line. They turned to Hugh the Great and basically said, look, you're the son of King Robert and the brother-in-law to King Rudolph. You're the obvious choice here, especially since you've basically been running the kingdom anyway. So how about it? And Hugh took one look at the crown and said, did I stutter? I am not wearing that crown. And I'm pretty sure he also said, and by the way, this, fuck that cursed throne, fuck these flimsy castles, and fuck all your in-laws. But France did need a king, and so Hugh came up with a plan. He wasn't the only heir to the throne. The crown used to be held by the Carolingians, so why not make it their problem again? So in the spring of 936, mere months after Rudolph's death, an embassy was sent to England. Now because King Athelstan's court was mobile, and because his kingdom was vast, the embassy didn't meet with Athelstan in Winchester. Instead, they traveled to York, where the king was working to ensure that he maintained control over his new subjects. Don't forget that the north was starting to strain against Athelstan's rule. And now that the kings of Dublin were converting to Christianity, it was priority number one to remind everyone up there that their best option was to stick with England. So the Frankish delegation traveled to York. And when they arrived... They stated on Hugh the Great's behalf that they wished Louis to, quote, come and take the head of the kingdom, end quote. Now, these were the same people who dethroned Louis's father and whose violent uprising resulted in Louis having to take refuge in the English court for over a decade. And suddenly they're showing up on the doorstep saying that the son of the guy who started that whole mess wants Louis to come back and sit on the throne. Athelstan was no stranger to the bloody nature of dynastic intrigue. He was also no stranger to people lying. And this sounded fishy. He didn't trust it. And besides, even if Hugh really did want Louis to come back, what about the rest of the Frankish nobility? So Athelstan made a demand. He insisted that the royal embassy swear that Louis would have the fealty of all of his vassals. And they swore it. And that might have felt like it came a bit too easily. And besides, Athelstan had grown fond of Louis and he wanted to make sure that he'd be safe. So he also insisted that Louis' mother, Aide Gifu, would accompany him on his journey to Lyon. No problem there either. And also, Bishop Otta of Ramsbury. Sure. With his full-armed escort. And they agreed to that, too. And keep in mind, some bishops operated a bit like warlords. Some of them had far more military power under their command than you'd expect. So sending Louis with Otta and his escort wasn't just a matter of keeping the young prince company. Athelstan was ensuring that Louis would have God's protection as well as man's heavily armed protection on the journey. But the embassy agreed to all of it. And so Athelstan bid Louis goodbye. And the young prince, just 15 years old, departed for a land that he had only known as a baby. He didn't speak Old French, nor Latin, He spoke Old English, but that wouldn't be much help. Furthermore, he knew next to nothing about Francia and knew none of his future subjects. This must have been a frightening time. But things looked up when he arrived at Boulogne. Hugh the Great and some assorted Frankish nobles had assembled to meet him and greet him there, and they did it with all the proper pomp and formality. They kissed his hand, and Hugh presented Louis with a beautiful horse marked with the royal insignia. And I wonder if it was at this moment that Louis realized that this was really happening. Accompanied by his English military escort, as well as the retinue of French nobility led by Hugh the Great, Louis rode to Lyon. And on June 19, 936, Louis was crowned King Louis IV of France. But there were still some hurdles to overcome. In particular was the issue that King Louis couldn't speak the language, and he didn't know any of the nobility but wouldn't you know it, that was precisely an area in which Hugh the Great thought he'd be able to help out his new king. That's lucky. And so he stepped in and took on the role of being the king's guardian, which meant that he pretty much had all the power of the crown, and he didn't have to wear the damn thing. And that is how King Louis IV immediately became the puppet of Hugh the Great. And if you think that Athelstan would step in to support his nephew's rule and help him try and get out from underneath Hugh's control. Keep in mind that Hugh the Great was married to Athelstan's half-sister, Aidhild. Those marriage alliances cut both ways. And I'm sure that Hugh was hoping that his familial relationship would be enough to keep England from intervening. You know, should Louis begin to get any ideas. But unfortunately for Hugh, Louis had grown up in Athelstan's court. And so he definitely had ideas. And while Hugh the Great was acting as regent... King Louis was learning and making connections. But meanwhile, as King Louis IV was settling in, another of Athelstan's foster sons needed support. Alan, the exiled heir to Brittany, who had grown up in Athelstan's court, received a message from a Breton monk by the name of Jean Delain de Lann de Now, Brittany had suffered greatly in the last 33 years, after it had been lost to the Vikings upon the death of Alan's grandfather, Duke Alan the Great, and the Breton monk believed that it needed to be rescued from those same Vikings, and that young Alan was the one to do it. And you have to admit, a request like that would flatter anyone, and it was custom designed to appeal to Alan. See, Alan was cut from a different kind of cloth. For example, when the court went hunting for boar, Alan refused to use swords or spears. Instead, He insisted on facing the boar down armed only with a wooden staff. And that was no minor thing. Boar were and are incredibly dangerous. And this kid was out there fighting them with a stick like he was Little John. Alan appears to have been a warrior down to his bones. And so I suspect he needed very little prodding to convince him to take up the reconquest of Brittany. And as for Athelstan, well, he'd just installed a foster son on the throne of Francia. So he was already feeling his oats. And besides, over the last three decades, tons of people from Brittany have been seeking refuge in England. And so he had a large number of Breton subjects who could assist Alan in his task. And so we're told that in 936, Athelstan mobilized his fleet and provided support to Alan and his Breton army as they embarked upon the reconquest of Brittany. And that old Breton monk had chosen his savior well. Because by 937, just a year after his landing, Alan and his army had forced the Vikings of Brittany all the way back to the Loire. Alan had regained his ancestral homelands and he was well on his way to becoming Britannum dukes, Duke Alan II of Brittany. And so here we are in the mid 930s and one foster son is sitting on the throne of Francia and another is ruling over Brittany. And we're not done yet. According to the sagas, there was another foster son who needed Athelstan's help, Hakon, son of Harold Fairhair, and the records here are contradictory and are from sagas, which obviously are not without controversy. But assuming the information is true, at around this point in the story, Hakon, Athelstan's Norse foster son, received word that his father, Harold Fairhair, had died, and that his half brother, Eric Bloodaxe had been proclaimed the king of Norway. And this news didn't sit well with Hakon at all. So he turned to Athelstan for support. He wanted to seize the kingdom from Eric, And to be honest, the choice between Hakon and Eric was probably a pretty easy decision for Athelstan. I mean, Hakon was a Christian convert. He had personal bonds with Athelstan and the kingdom of England in general. And he was raised in a manner that Athelstan trusted. After all, He was raised in his court. Eric, on the other hand, was a pagan and thoroughly unknown. So Athelstan provided Hakon with ships and soldiers to support his claim to Norway. It was a good start, but upon landing, Hakon realized he was in a tight spot. Sure, he did have soldiers with him, but they were foreign soldiers. Furthermore, while he was the son of the old king. He'd spent a long time in England and ran the risk of seeming a little bit too foreign himself. And finally, he wasn't king. His half-brother Eric was. And that meant that pretty much everywhere was hostile territory, and he was almost certainly outnumbered. But Hakon dealt with this situation in a manner that strikes me as very much like something Athelstan would have done. He set about meeting with the powerful landowners in the kingdom and he promised them that if they supported his claim, he would free them of the taxes that they owed him. Now, if you're wondering how he'd generate revenue for the crown without the ability to tax those landlords, you're not the only one. But that apparently was a problem for future Hakon. And besides, if he could appeal away his half-brother's supporters, then he'd never get the crown in the first place. And so, from Jarl to Jarl he went. And soon... Eric Bloodaxe found himself abandoned, and he and his family had to flee Norway and seek refuge at Orkney, which left Hakon able to proclaim himself as King Hakon of Norway, or as the sagas remember him, King Hakon Adelsfoster, King Hakon the Fosterling of Athelstan. And so, right now, we're at about 937, and Athelstan's foster sons are sitting on the thrones of Francia, Norway, and Brittany. And if the sagas are correct, we also have Eric Bloodaxe sitting in Orkney, and this won't be the last time we hear from him. We're also finding ourselves in a situation where Athelstan is acting truly in an imperial capacity. He had his fingers in a lot of different pies, and in a very real sense, he was shaping the course of European history. But it came with the question had Athelstan overstretched himself? Furthermore, I wonder if Athelstan was aware of the thing that made Hugh the Great so wary of the crown. Namely, that the higher in stature you go, the more enemies you acquire. And Athelstan's method of rule, while effective, was certain to attract enemies. Though, to be fair, his ruthlessness tended to keep that enemies list rather short. For example, at one point, Athelstan had four brothers who were all potential rivals. But Elfweird, the crown prince, died mysteriously in Mercian territory shortly after King Edward died, which is what opened up the path to the throne for Athelstan. And then Elfweird's only full-blooded brother, Edwin, appears to have been part of Athelstan's court for a little while. And then something happened. Some scholars suspect that there was some loose talk in court, and that it implicated Edwin in a plot against Athelstan. After all, Edwin was the next in line for the throne. Or perhaps Athelstan realized that he preferred his younger brothers, who he raised himself, over Edwin, who was raised by his father. Whatever it was, Fulkuin tells us that Edwin was, quote, driven by some disturbance in his kingdom, end quote. And so in a panic, he boarded a ship headed for Francia. But he never made it there alive. That's two rivals down. And as for the last two potential dynastic rivals, well, those were Athelstan's youngest half-brothers, Edmund and Adred. And they were raised in court, thus keeping them close to Athelstan. There are moments where Athelstan looks like an amazing king. And in many ways, he was. But it's hard to ignore the bodies in his wake. Even his biographer, who did talk about how kind and generous Athelstan was, had to admit that at the same time, he was like a thunderbolt to his enemies. And few people knew that side of Athelstan like King Guthrith of Dublin. His attempt at seizing Northumbria had been a disaster that left him on the run, and eventually he was forced to swear to King Athelstan that he would never return to England. And the wrath that Athelstan brought down upon Guthrith must have made an impression. Because Guthrith stayed true to his word. But that didn't mean that his activities didn't impact England. See, while Athelstan was solidifying his hold on his new territories, Guthrith was in Dublin, reigning as king. And like Athelstan, he was a man of ambition, and he directed his ire towards a nearby rival kingdom, the Limerick Vikings. For years, while England was enjoying that era of peace, while Athelstan and his court were governing East Anglia and Northumbria and reforming the currency, Guthrith and his son Olaf were engaged in bloody battles against the Limerick Vikings, until finally, in 934, Guthrith grew sick. And died and that's when his son and heir olaf gufferson who was actually also the son-in-law to king constantine of scotland took the throne of dublin and that also just happens to be the year where athelstan went to war once again with scotland and i can't help but wonder if constantine was counting on olaf's support and that's why he lost without much of a battle we may never know but whatever the plan was olaf stayed in ireland continuing his father's war against the limerick vikings and across the irish sea in england the mood was shifting the northumbrians were growing discontent with athelstan's rule and so were the scots following the great court at Cirencester in 935 that was the assembly where athelstan held a lavish assembly at the center of welsh taxation and made constantine watch well after that council king constantine vanishes from the witness lists and i wonder if that was the first sign of what was coming meanwhile back in ireland the kingdom of dublin was on the rise as luck would have it olaf was a natural war leader and it only took a few years for olaf guthrifson to defeat the limerick vikings and capture king olaf scrabbyhead head at the battle of luri and by the way if you were looking for a name for your next cat I'd say you just found it. But with the capture of King Olaf's Scrabbyhead, head, suddenly King Olaf Guthrifson and the Dublin Vikings were in a situation that hadn't existed in recent memory. They were free from any nearby dynastic threats. And that meant that they were free to look for more ambitious vistas. Potentially vistas that were being promoted by his father-in-law, King Constantine. See, there were territories across the Irish Sea that were his by birthright. The lost lands of Jorvik were his. And King Constantine of the Scots was willing to help him retake them. So Olaf engaged in a massive recruiting campaign. And recruiting is used loosely here. A lot of what he was doing was press ganging. And based upon the record, it appears that Olaf cast a very wide net soldiers were forced into service from all over ireland and the hebrides and most of these soldiers based on the names that survived appear to have been scandinavian or irish scandinavian so basically olaf was taking full advantage of his new position as the most powerful scandinavian ruler on the island and now that the limerick vikings had been crushed he was ruthlessly exercising his new power Furthermore, scholars argue that Olaf personally engaged in his recruitment, which probably made the whole thing even more coercive. I mean, do you really want to refuse the guy who had just defeated the king of the Limerick Vikings and who is now standing in your hall with a shit ton of heavily armed warriors? Probably not. So, as late as August of 937, while Athelstan was receiving word from Alan of his victories over the Vikings of Brittany, To the west olaf was recruiting soldiers into his service and after pressing large portions of dublin and the surrounding area into his service olaf likely sailed to man and did the same there then to the hebrides and the western isles and pressed even more soldiers into his service the army he was building was enormous and in scotland king constantine was doing the same if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and we're on everything else for the most part. And you can find links to all the other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.